The last class of my old professor's life took place once a week in his house by a window in the study where he could watch a small hibiscus plant shed its pink leaves. The class met on Tuesdays. It began after breakfast. The subject was the meaning of life. It was taught from experience. No books were required, yet many topics were covered, including love, work, community, family, aging, forgiveness, and finally, death. The last lecture was brief, only a few words. A funeral was held in lieu of graduation. The last class of my old professor's life had only one student. I was the student. Through my dying, I'm teaching people how to live so that when they come to the end of their life, they won't be so disappointed as to what they did with it. Because so many people look back and say, oh, I wasted it. All the terrible things I did, all the good things I didn't do, and so on. I'm Mitch Album, and this is the Tuesday People Podcast. And this is the first Tuesday People podcast, and that voice belonged to Maury Schwartz, my old professor, the Maury of Tuesdays with Maury. And this podcast, after many, many years, uh, nearly 25, of sitting alongside my old professor and absorbing his wisdom, is designed to share that wisdom with you, our podcast listeners, wherever you are around the world, because I have benefited from it greatly over these years. And in the true spirit of teaching, I think it's time to share it. And I have vaults of tapes of my time that I sat alongside my old professor, Maury Schwartz, that nobody has ever heard. And I thought, what a great idea in this new podcast world and format that we can share them with people around the world who have enjoyed it and create this sort of large, large classroom for a beloved old professor. Uh, alongside me is Lisa Goich. Hi, Lisa. Hello, Mitch. Lisa's a longtime friend and a producer of this program. And uh, she and I will be here week after week on Tuesdays. Makes sense, right? Good idea. Perfect sense. Yeah, we'll launch it. And uh, each week, like, I, like what happened with Maury, uh, we're going to take one topic that Maury and I shared uh, or his take on different things around the world and talk about it with you. And we'll have phone calls and participation with people around the world. We'll also have some special guests every now and then. Dr. Phil will be joining us uh, in next week's podcast. And it's through Stage 29 and his production team that we're happy to bring this podcast to you. And so we're looking forward to creating a community because that's what Maury did. The book Tuesdays with Maury was never supposed to be the book that it became. Uh, it was a small little labor of love that I did to help pay Maury's medical bills. And Lisa, it was, uh, I can tell you, uh, the probably one of the most common questions I get is, did you expect all these people to read Tuesdays with Maury when you wrote it? <laughs> I can tell you the answer was, I didn't expect my family to read it. I, I thought I'd have a hard time getting it to them. So uh, it really became something that nobody ever could have uh, anticipated and it grew and it swelled and it went from this little book to pay his medical bills to a book that's taught in classrooms around the world has audiences and people following it around the world and uh, changed my life forever uh, and so in a certain way we want to return the favor 
We're going to share the sound of Maury throughout the course of this podcast and all of our podcasts so you can hear from him. And we look forward to you uh, joining us in this forum and emailing us, texting us. Yes, we're even going to be setting up a phone line that we'll announce on our next episode where people can call in with their questions and stories. And maybe we'll have them on the show with us as well. Hopefully we'll get to do what you just heard Maury say in that inaugural cut there that you don't reach the end of your life saying, I should have done this or should have done that. But instead, live your life the way, well, there's that country song, Live Like You're Dying or, you know, whatever the, Mm -hmm. you probably know it better than I do, at least you're involved in the music business. Mm -hmm. But I think it goes like that. Live every day like you're dying. and Live like you are dying. And Maury Maury, uh, was. And so I think what made him wise was his own mortality. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, let me share with you the story of how this all happened. It was, well, it really began in 1975, 20 years before I would ever go and see Maury. 1975, my freshman year at Brandeis University, I was a typical freshman starting. I was very young when I went to college. I had barely turned 17. And... I had signed up for a sociology class, and I walked down the hallway and went into this class, and there were nine kids in the room. And I immediately sized up the situation and said, no, 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 this is much too small a class. If I cut it, they'll know I'm not here. So I decided I was going to drop the class, Lisa. I was Mm, literally going to go. As one would. As one would. (laughs) I was going to go to the registrar and drop the class. And that's when the professor, a short silver-haired, green-eyed, wonderfully crooked-smiled professor named Maury Schwartz began to call roll. And one of the problems when your last name begins with A is you can't get out fast enough. And he said, Mitchell Album. And I could have continued going. You know, Lisa? How far to the door were you? I was halfway out. I was one leg in and one leg out. I was, I was one, and, and that one leg, if the, if the out leg had won, I would not be doing right. this podcast. I would not that be talking. I, my life would be 100% different. And I always tell this to people, on such small things in life, can things change? Your whole world can change. If I had just dropped that class, he, wouldn't, he didn't know it was me. He could have been going Mitchell Album, Mitchell Album, Bueller. Bueller, you know, that kind of thing. And I just would have been down the hall. And instead, out of guilt, I kind of slid back in and I raised my hand. And I said, here, um, Mitchell album. And he said, is it Mitch or Mitchell? Which do you prefer? Now, for most of you, I'm sure that doesn't mean a whole lot. But for me, I was kind of touched that he asked me that question because I have one of those names that depending on what the teacher wants to call you, at the beginning of the year, you're either Mitch or Mitchy or Mitchell. And so I said, well, Mitch, my friends call me Mitch. And he said, all right, Mitch it is. And Mitch? And I said, yeah. He said, I hope one day you'll think of me as your friend. So I knew that cutting the class was out of the question at that point. (laughs) I was locked in. I was going to have to go to every class. 
I don't think I ever missed one of his classes as a result of that. But that began this really amazing relationship that uh, I had with Maury. And it spanned all four years of college. I took every class that he offered. I majored in sociology because of him. I wrote an honors thesis in sociology because of him. By the way, Lisa, my honors thesis was entitled Football, Its Role in Society. I don't that know. That is deep, Mitch. Yeah. I, I don't know what that says more about me or higher education. I'm sure it's still the seminal work on that topic. If you want to go to the Brandeis Library and find it, it's still there. Uh, I think we need to do an episode on that. Yeah, <laughs> way, way down the road. That'll be episode <laughs> number 150. <laughs> but really, I just did it so that I could continue to see Maury. Honestly, that was the that was the motivation. And we became more than just teacher and student. It was kind of almost like an uncle and nephew situation. I was young. I really looked. He was the first sort of adult that kind of treated me like an adult because your parents, you know, you're always their your kid to their parents. And and he asked me what I wanted to do with my life. He was really interested in that. And and uh, came graduation time, I went out and bought him a present. I'd never bought a teacher a present ever. I didn't have any money, so it had to be a very cheap present. But I got a briefcase for him, and I gave it to him. And he began to cry a little bit, which wasn't unusual for more. And he turned it over and around, back and forth. And he said, Mitch, you're one of the good ones. Promise me you'll stay in touch. I said, I will. He said, promise. I said, okay, I promise. Say it in a sentence. <laughs> you know, like we're learning French. <laughs> I said, okay, I promise I'll stay in touch. And then I proceeded to break that promise every day, week, month, and year for 16 years. So 16 years without even a phone call while I was busy pursuing my career. I was ambitious. I got into the music for a while, and then I got into the world of journalism, and my career kind of took off. And I have no excuse. It was inexcusable. You know, one year you say, I'm going to go back and visit. The next year you say, maybe I'll call, and then I'll go back and visit. The next year you say, maybe I'll write, and then I'll go back and visit. And meanwhile, my career was taking me places, and I was doing very well as a sports writer. I, I got a job at a major newspaper. I got a column. Suddenly, I was doing a radio show. Next thing you know, I was on television. You know, my contemporaries and people I'm hanging around with from, uh, you know, the Pistons and the Lions and then Michael Jordan and people like that. And you win an award and, you know, you buy a bigger house and you get another award and a bigger job and a bigger paycheck and a bigger house. And you're on television. Someone asks for your autograph. Someone takes a picture. You're hanging around with this guy, hanging around with that guy. And one day you wake up and you say, this was meant to be. You know, I was hatched out of the egg with all this success coming my way. We forget the people who make us the kind of people who can have that kind of success, right? We forget our, what, teachers. Teachers and, I, and mentors. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and I forgot mine for 16 years. Now, Maury, during that time, he just did what he always did. He taught small groups of kids at Brandeis University, sociology. He didn't aspire to become the dean. He didn't have to switch over to Harvard, try to prove that he was climbing. You know, he was very content reaching a handful of kids and... At nights and weekends, he wasn't what you would call a, a, a pop culture nut. He didn't watch a lot of television or things like that. He would have discussion groups at his house. Uh, they would take on any kind of topic. He would go to a, a church in Harvard Square on Wednesday nights. Uh, it was a, a program called Dance Free, and you would pay five bucks and go into this church, which, by the way, I don't understand, because if it was Dance Free, why are they charging five bucks? But <laughs> Not he would quite go, free, but yeah, close. Yeah, semi-free. <laughs> cheap dance. Yeah. And he would go in there and he would dance with all these kids. You know, he'd, he'd have a towel and a sweatpants and 
He'd dance the rumba and the merengue and the tango, all these crazy dances. They were playing rock and roll music over the speakers, but it didn't seem to bother him. That's who Maury was. He was just joyous that way. He found joy in every day, and he went through his life like that, very content, through his 50s, 60s, and into his 70s. And then, in his 70s, he began to notice a change in his body. Long walks would leave him tired, and he would say, ah, you know, I'm getting old. Going up steps, he'd have to stop, rest. He said, boy, I'm really getting old. Then he began to stumble inexplicably. He'd get out of the car and just trip. And one time he was at a wedding with his wife, and they were dancing, and he fell on the dance floor, just tumbled over. And as he would later say to me, Mitch, I never fell when I danced. So he knew something was wrong, yeah. And that began this long process, a doctor and a specialist, an MRI, a CAT scan, on and on and on. Eight months or so of him trying to find out what was the matter with him until one day, a very nice day in Boston, he sat across from a Boston neurologist and the doctor said to him, I have bad news, Maury, you have ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And Maury had grown up in New York. He actually remembered Lou Gehrig, the famous baseball player who made the Mm -hmm. speech, you know, today I consider myself the luckiest, 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 luckiest man, man, man in the world. Man, man, man. Well, Maury didn't feel that. And when he heard that he had Lou Gehrig's disease, he said to the doctor, that's fatal. And the doctor said, yes, it is. He said, well, it used to be fatal, right? I mean, they have a cure for it now. No, the doctor said, there's no cure. Well, how long do I have left to live? Maury asked. Hard to say. The doctor said maybe a couple years. Well, Maury walked out of that office to the same beautiful spring day that he had left behind. And he saw people enjoying the day and riding bicycles and driving around and shopping. And the sky was blue. And a voice inside of him started to yell, Hey, 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 don't you know what just happened to me in there? Isn't everybody supposed to come running up to me now and say, we heard the news, you know, no more blue skies, no more nice days, no more bicycle riding. We're all going to be sad with you. We're all going to be gray with you because you got a death sentence. You know, you can imagine how that's what you want to have happen, right? Yeah, that's how we would all feel because that's how we're feeling inside. That's right. And how can how can life go on when we just got this news? Why does the world go on spinning? Remember that song, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's the end of the world for you. So it's got to be the end of the world for everybody. Well, he waited for that to happen and it didn't happen. And so on the steps of that building, because the world cannot cater to an individual, my old professor, Maury Schwartz, made a very profound decision. He either was going to go one direction and be angry and bitter all the rest of his life. Why me? Or he was going to find something positive in this terribly negative hand that he had been dealt. And because he'd always been more positive than negative, and because he'd always been a teacher, he decided to take the positive route and try to find some information and teach about what was happening to him right up to when he died. Here he is from our conversations, one of our earliest conversations, talking about that moment. It took a while to accept it. Not the first day, or even the first week. But I had to keep telling myself, that's who I am now. I disabled, and I continually, progressively disabled person. Mm -hmm. 
and that's how I will be the rest of my life, physically, but not emotionally, and not psychologically, and not cognitively. So I had to gather my strengths together. Well, he did gather them together, and he began to teach. He began to ask people to come in and ask him questions. He would say, don't pay any attention to this body. That's not me. That's the carton I was shipped in. It's not me. Look in my eyes. I'm still here. And so even as ALS began its terrible march through Maury's body, and those of you who are listening to this podcast, if you've had any exposure to ALS, you know it is the cruelest because it snips the connection between your brain and the rest of your body. And so you slowly sort of lose control of your extremities and Eventually, you know, you lose the ability to walk, to lift your arms, to turn, to control your torso until your body becomes this sort of stiff, useless husk that needs to be carried from place to place. And yet your mind stays perfectly intact throughout the whole process. So you're fully aware of the horror that's happening to you right up until the day you die. And in Maury's case, it started in his feet, sort of worked its way up. But even as he went to a cane and then a cane to a walker, and then a walker to a wheelchair, and then a wheelchair to being carried back and forth. Even as he lost the ability to pull up his own pants, to buckle his own belt, to tie his own shoes, to brush his own teeth, even as he lost the ability to shower, to shave, even as he lost the ability to wipe his own rear end after going to the bathroom, and he needed someone else to do it for him like an infant. Throughout all of that, he taught. He invited people to come in. And it became a little thing that got some attention. And a reporter one day from the Boston Globe came out, curious, to meet this old professor who was teaching people about the meaning of life as he was dying. And he wrote a story which found its way down to the desk of Ted Koppel, ABC's Nightline. And the next thing you know, Nightline was coming up to Boston to do what would be the first of three episodes strictly devoted to my old professor, Maury Schwartz. And I can still remember how Ted Koppel began that first episode. He said basically along the lines of, Who is Maury Schwartz? And why, by the end of this program, are so many of you going to care about him? I remember that because I was watching on my very nice television set in my nice suburban home, a thousand miles away, and I saw this image of Maury, and my jaw dropped, because there on the screen was this thin, sickly, white-haired-looking version of my old professor, this man I cared so much about, and now he only had a few months left to live. Mm. That must have been hard for you to see that. It was hard, and it was embarrassing, because, you know, selfishly you say, Oh, no, you know, all these years that I kept saying I was going to go back there and see him, and now he's dying. Now if I go back and see him, it's a double whammy. You finally go back and see him, and it's like, oh, it took my dying to get you to come see me. What would you have done in that situation? Mm -hmm. Well, I probably would have done exactly what you did. I think I would have contacted him. First of all, let's just say that that was your second moment you know, your first moment was not getting out of your classroom. Yeah. And your second moment in this whole story is that moment of turning on the TV. I just keep thinking of what were the chances of you having that on at that exact time right. and seeing this? You could have missed it. Yeah. So I think you seeing that was a sign 
believe me, I did a few of those. Pick up the phone, put down the phone, pick up the phone, put down, the, you know, <laughs> almost up to the last digit. And then you and then you hang up again because you're not ready to say what you're It's It's almost like when exactly. you're Exactly. You might not have date. ever called him. Yeah. So I can tell you, Lisa, that when I did call him, Maury was the one who made it easier for me because when I was in college, I used to call him coach, right? It was like a mm-hmm. sports affectation. Hi, coach. How you doing, coach? That kind of thing. And when I called him, his number was still listed. A nurse answered. And she handed him the phone, and I can still remember exactly what I said. I said, Professor Schwartz, this is Mitch Album. I was a student of yours in the 70s. I don't know if you remember me. And the first thing he said to me after 16 years, how come you didn't call me coach? Ah. And so, and I never wrote that in the book, I think, for some reason. I don't know why I forgot that little anecdote until after the thing was published, but... That kind of, you know, broke the ice. And by the time the phone call was over, I was coming to visit him. Guilt is a very powerful motivator. (laughs) We all know that. Mm -hmm. Still, when I went to visit him, it was supposed to be a one-time visit. I was going to ease my conscience and just be done with it. And in fact, this was uh, 1995. Cell phones were just still kind of the kind of thing that you had in a car, you know, but you didn't really walk around with unless you were really rich. And I rented that big giant box phone, yes, right? Right, that Michael yes. Douglas on the beach in Wall Street. You know? <laughs> yes. Uh, so I had I rented a car and a cell phone in it so that I could talk to ESPN while I was driving to his neighborhood. Now at this point in my life, it's important to point out that I was working probably ninety hours a week without exaggeration. I I did five newspaper columns a week. I did five radio shows a week. I lived in uh, Bristol, Connecticut for three days a week while I was launching uh, with other people ESPN2, that network. I wrote freelance Mm -hmm. articles, magazine articles. I never said no to anything because I thought, well, they just won't ask me again if I say no. So I've got to keep going and going and going and going and churning and churning. And I was having a lot of success. And so I was talking to ESPN as, as I drove into his neighborhood And unbeknownst to me, he had asked his nurses to carry him outside. It was a nice day outside. And he had asked his nurses to bring him out to the curb so that he could greet me right at the curb. So I come down his street, and I look up ahead, and all of a sudden I see this figure in a wheelchair, and I'm talking to ESPN, and I hit the brakes. Now, the proper thing to do, of course, is to throw the phone out the window, get out and give this man (laughs) a hug, Right. right? Who I haven't seen in 16 years. That's what you would have done, right, Lisa? Yes. I I would have said, I gotta go. Okay. I'd like to say that that's what I did, too. I'd like to say that that's what I did. However. However, I did not. I continued that conversation on the phone, but I slid down below the dashboard, you know, pretending like I was looking for something on the floor. And I stayed on the floor of the car finishing that phone call with ESPN because at that point in my life, work came first and everything else could wait, you know even a dying old man. Now, that's not a nice thing to say about yourself, but I share it in this podcast because it's one of umpteen lessons that I have learned since then about how wrong I was about so many things in my life. And so I share it with you because somewhere in this audience of podcast listeners, there is someone who, if they were in that same situation, they would stay on the phone too. So I'm here to tell you it was a mistake. Please learn from my mistake. People before cell phone conversations, especially people who are sick and who are dying. Well, I got out of the car 
Maury uh, didn't even know what a cell phone was, and he just wanted to go inside and eat. And we went inside, and uh, we sat down at a table. He was in a wheelchair, and it was, Lisa, a sick person's house, if you know what I mean. Mm. Yeah, I've been there. It had a certain smell. Uh, Mm -hmm. There were nurses running around. There were boxes of insure everywhere. There were all sorts of things like that, like medical supplies all over the place. Oxygen I've been in that tank. Situation. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. Pills, all that. And I was not particularly good with that. I was kind of squeamish. And we sat there and I watched him try to eat a little piece of tomato and his hands were shaking. He tried to lift it up his mouth and it fell off. He tried to lift it up his mouth and it fell off again. It took almost five minutes for him to get this piece of tomato finally in his mouth and finally to chew it. And yet all that time, he didn't complain. You know, he just talked about how interesting this phase of his life was. He talked about how uh, he was like a leaf. When it comes to the end of its life, it gets really colorful, you know, right before it falls off the tree. And he felt like he was becoming, mm-hmm. like, brilliant with color and all these elements of his life. People were coming. They had seen the Nightline broadcast. He was so happy that I had come back. And he was just sharing all this illumination that he felt that he had as a result of dying. You know, as, as he said... And this was paramount to his philosophy. Everybody knows they're going to die. Nobody believes it. Everybody knows they're going to die, but nobody believes it. Well, with ALS... Isn't that the truth? But with ALS, you don't have a choice to believe it. They tell you you're going to die. So now you know you're going to die eventually, and now you know you're going to die within a certain time frame. And so he was using it to try to spread this knowledge, this illumination that he said he had. And when I went home that night, I kept canceling planes, Lisa. You know, it was like I had a three o'clock and I called and canceled it. You know, I had a five o'clock and I called mm-hmm. and canceled it at six o'clock, <laughs> seven. So finally, there's a last plane home. And when I went to that plane, I got on and I flew home and I said, you know, you're 37 years old and you're perfectly healthy. And he's 78 years old and dying. And yet he seems 10 times happier with his life than you are. What's the matter with this picture? And I had asked him, why is it that people are always talking about, oh, if I could just be young again, oh, if I could just have my youth over again, I would do this and I would do that, when he seems so content with how he was living. And this is what he said. I think people have, so much of them have not found meaning in their life. So they're running all the time, looking for it, not knowing that that's what they're looking for. So they think the next car or the next house or the next uh, vacation, whatever, you're going to give it to them. Then they find that's empty too. So they keep on running for more. So what should they do instead? Love each other. I'm serious. Our great poet Orton said, love each other or die. Wow. Yeah, pretty profound. And I realized that he at 78 had found some formula to happiness that I at 37, with a healthy body and the ability to get up and fly home and move about and do all the things that he could no longer do, was lacking. And so I began to go back the next Tuesday and the next Tuesday, and the next Tuesday, and the next Tuesday, and all the Tuesdays that Maury had left in his life to try to find the answer to that very basic question, what do we know when we are really looking death in the face, as Maury was? 
really looking death in the face, not that I know I'm going to die one day, but really looking death in the face. What do we learn? What do we know that puts our life into perspective? And wouldn't it be great to have that perspective now when you're young enough and healthy enough to do something about it? And that's what Maury and I did every week. I would kind of throw up a topic, be it family, marriage, forgiveness, money, career. And he would say, this matters. This doesn't really matter. You think this matters, but when you get to where I am, and Mitch, you will get to where I am. A favorite thing he used to say. Mm -hmm. Then it's not going to matter. And each week I got this amazing illumination. And that's what we're here to do with this podcast, to try to share Maury's take, my take now that I have reached an age where I am actually much closer to his age when he died than I was to my age when I got there. And perhaps yeah. perhaps in the last 25 years, some of that wisdom that Maury shared with me as a, as a young man has now become part of the fabric of my life and part of the fabric of yours who are listening to us. And so this is a community to share those things. And so just like I did with Maury, we're now going to do together every Tuesday, sort of take a topic and analyze it and look at it with a breath. You know, say, okay, hang on. Let's just look at this in the big picture. That's what we're going to be talking about in these weeks to come. And it's my hope that through Maury's teachings and through some of the things that I have learned in the 25 years that I've had this amazing existence since starting to go see Maury and then getting to travel around the world and write books and deal with these kind of topics for many, many years since, that I can share some of what I've learned along the way, and, and hopefully there'll be some wisdom in it, and we can learn from each other, and you'll be a part of it as well. I'll leave you uh, this week with something that Maury was always trying to get me to admit, because he said, you know, love is the most important thing in our lives. Well, back then, Lisa, I was not what you would call uh, a very expressive 30-something guy. I was... That's hard to believe, by yeah. the way. <laughs> no, it's not. Knowing you, how I know you now. Well, now, <laughs> but uh, I had a much tougher exterior, and Maury was always trying to get me to break down and, you know, exclaim my love for him. And I found this little piece of tape from one of the weeks when we were there, and uh, it's kind of typical of how we spoke. Mitch. Yes? Look at me. You're smiling. Yeah. I love you. <laughs> Come on. You all softy. I want you to hear it. Oh, thank you. Take her in. Thank you. Take I got it in. on tape, too, you know. That's right. I'll play it back. You can't run away. <laughs> Mitch. <laughs> yeah. That makes me cry. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh. in the weeks to come, we'll progress and find out, you know, how I eventually got around to saying, I love you too, instead of just saying, oh, you old softy or oh, you old this. But that's for well, the I weeks could, to come. That was a really poignant little moment there. Yeah. Well, we've got lots more of them. And we welcome you to join us every Tuesday here on the podcast. Tell your friends uh, if they've read Tuesdays with Maury and they want to sort of hear it come to audio and podcast life, they're welcome to join us and become part of the Tuesday People community. Our 
address on the internet? WeTuesdayPeople.com. We have links to all of our socials. We'll have the phone number up on that site as well. And we also have a Tuesday People Facebook page that's a group page, a private group, and they can share all of their private stories there and, um, you know, share with the rest of the community. So until we see you next Tuesday, and it'll become a Tuesday habit, uh, on behalf of Lisa Goitsch, this is Mitch Album, and you've been listening to Tuesday People. Thank you for listening to Tuesday People. To be part of our conversation, join the Tuesday People community at wetuesdaypeople.com. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and share it with your friends. We look forward to having you with us every Tuesday because, after all, we're Tuesday People.